one. Hello, this is Jonah Helper, president of Altruicity, author of Date Your Donors, and your host of The Pipeline Live. I am thrilled to be having you here today. Um, whether you are listening, whether you are watching, we hope that you get something out of today's discussion. And to that end, we're talking about doing more with less. I think this is a topic for nonprofits and nonprofit professionals that is extremely relevant, regardless of the size of your organization, whether you are uh, brand spanking new and a tiny little uh, organization or a big institution. And we all experience limited resources in one way or another. So today's topic, I think, is going to be uh, very relevant to most people. Um, also, I mean, we live in a day and age where anyone with $200 and an internet connection is able to start their own organization. So there are countless resources that are either cheap or free that you can absolutely use for your organization. And figuring out how to navigate the resources and more specifically how to stand out and how to be able to do a lot with a little is something that we're going to tackle with today. Um, in a brief moment, we will be introducing our special guests who will help us uh, have this discussion today. But in the meantime, right now, I'm going to start with a live poll. Um, I want to get a sense from the audience. Um, uh, we're going to launch that now, where we ask, what resources does your organization lack in the most significant way? We want to get an idea of the pain points that you're experiencing at your organization, and therefore, your feedback, and you've got a whole bunch of options to choose from. Um, on, underneath the video screen, you'll see a little widget that has the live poll questions there. If you want to take a moment now and answer those questions, um, there's a bunch of options. So pick the one that, you, that resonates the most with you, the most painful, most painful for you of the bunch. Um, and that will be uh, helpful to give us an idea of which way to steer the conversation today um, along with our special guest. Before we get to our special guest, I'd like to uh, introduce a commercial sponsor, which is Raise-It. Raise-It is a crowd uh, platform that lets you fundraise online, whether it's a crowdfunding initiative, whether it's a marathon, um, whatever it is, it gives you a way to build a community and get them to raise money in your behalf. And what I love about them also is that they are not commission-based. They are 100% just fee-for-service, and therefore, the money that you raise is your money. Um, so we're going to share a brief video from our sponsor, Raise It, and uh, then we're going to have a live poll afterwards for anyone who is interested in hearing from the Raise It team uh, in case you want more information. So we're going to launch that Raise It video at this time. Hey, fundraisers. Mailings? That can be frustrating time-consuming, and costly. Just trash it. It's difficult parting with the past, but it's time to move on. I know it's tempting to spend weeks entering all that data into your system. It's enticing, thinking of all the mail merge crashes and returned envelopes. But we've got another way. A better way. Say yes to innovation. Say yes to cutting-edge technology. Say yes to raise it. We're all about simplifying the process while accelerating the results. We make it easy for your donors, so the response is super quick. Here's how it's done. Your donors select an amount, enter their info, and receive a confirmation email, all within seconds. Compare that to the days and weeks that this exact transaction would take with a print campaign, and you need no more convincing. But there's more. Running multiple campaigns? No problem. We got you covered. At Raisin, the options are endless. It's no one-size-fits-all. Our expert campaign managers are here to help you decide what campaign model will work best for your cause. Here's a sneak peek of two of our platforms. PlayRaise, a unique raffle of thrill where the ticket price is based on the spin of a wheel. Raise-a-thon time-based and matching campaigns displaying the multiplied impact, all while incorporating a peer-to-peer -peer element with multiple razors and team pages. To top it off, we charge no transaction fees or percentages. Just integrate directly with your existing credit card processor. Got questions? We're here for you. Visit our website at raise.it or give us a call, 732-917-8900. 
I hope you enjoyed that uh, sponsored video by the Raise It people. They are a fantastic, great team. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Raise It, there is a live poll question that is now active, and you are more than welcome to uh, respond, um, and they'll reach out to you directly. Um, that, that, that Raise It poll is available right underneath the video, and you'll see that there. Okay, so now to get into the meat of our program, we're going to be talking about doing more with less. And with that, I'm going to introduce my very good friend and mentor, Mark Knightig. Mark, are you there? I'm here, Jonah. Good to see you. Amazing to see you. You look fantastic as always. Um, so welcome, welcome to the show. This is uh, your Thanks. first time here. This is a new show. Uh, it's really exciting uh, to be able to get you on here and talk about this specific topic. Um, the reason why I thought of you is because I think from my, uh, my experience with you is that you're uniquely suited to discuss this uh, because of your career and the type of work that you've done and being able to do a lot with a little. So if you could take us back, I, we met 10 years ago. I, I was running a conference for nonprofits on innovation and like new best practices in the field. And we met there. We clearly hit it off. We became friends. We've stayed in touch with each other over the last 10 years. I've come to you for advice. We've had meals together. You've come to my birthday celebration, right? We've, we've maintained a relationship over the last 10 years. Give the audience an idea, you know, we met 10 years ago of your kind of career trajectory, how you got into the world of philanthropy, and then what you've been doing over the last 10 years. Sure. Well, thanks for this opportunity. I'll tell you, um, I have loved every minute of our relationship. And uh, I loved it when you wrote the book, Dating Your Donors, because it really, we have lived the very thing that you talk about and the very thing that we live. Um, it's about relationships. And my career started in manufacturing. I was a vice president of administration for a manufacturer back in Indiana. It was a family business. And I loved every minute of that. I, it just was a great opportunity, not only to work with family, but to use my, uh, my business skills that I had gotten in college. But uh, I made a trip to Africa, and it was during that visit that I really felt the, the need to um, broaden my, my perspective, my life, uh, my goals, and my ambitions. And I wanted to make a difference. And I found out that I could actually use my, my education and my skill sets to uh, change the world by uh, being the uh, national director of a medical mission over in the Gambia, West Africa. When I came back to the States, it was kind of like, you know, I wasn't on maternity leave. I, I didn't get my job back. Um, I made the choice to leave the business. And that's when I made a, a, a very calculated decision to go into the nonprofit world. Um, I didn't have any experience in that, but someone saw qualities in me. He was the president of the local hospital, and he gave me a chance to uh, transfer some of my skill sets into nonprofit. Long story short, I went through several hospital systems that I worked with, large and small um, organizations. And in 2009, I was invited um, for an interview to uh, be the executive director and CEO of the Kansas Cancer Research Foundation, which was based in a place called Erie, Pennsylvania. Never um, had been there before, um, other than mentioned in a movie or a song or on the news because of you know so much snow um, I had never been there and it was an opportunity to to fund and promote a very unique cancer treatment um, using radio waves and targeted nanoparticles started out as the only employee we um, were as large of an organization to have seven employees at one time uh, we ended with four and through that process is when I met Jonah, and we took a lot of ideas, a lot of, um, we took a lot of risks, and we um, were able to accomplish our mission, which is something that nonprofits rarely ever um, do. And it's not because it's not achievable, but I think sometimes um, we, lose, we lose focus. And that's one thing I want to talk about today is just keeping the focus on what we do. But I had the opportunity to do that. We closed our doors in 2014, and I moved down to Florida where I um, did consulting for the past six years, along with um, several other um, positions that I've um, been able to um, help organizations um, in interim basis. Um, most recently, three weeks ago, I started the HIV Cure Foundation. 
at the invitation of an individual that offered me some seed money with the express purpose of finding a cure and start um, saving lives through HIV. So um, that's where I'm at today. It's amazing. And now you mentioned, you know, it's funny because you kind of glossed over it and, and it's the main substance of why I invited you on. You mentioned how you came to Kansas Cancer Research to help them with uh, cancer research. And you went from, you know, just you being a single employee to have four staff members, but the magic and what you did, the outsized impact of the cancer research organization that you were working with was astronomical. And it was you know, the stuff of national uh, recognition, it was really, really impressive. Can you speak to a little bit of what you did there that, um, that I think was unconventional and will help our conversation when we talk about you know, doing a lot with a little? Yeah, um, I, I, had to, I went into a, a room where there was just a desk and I, I had to like start to create everything because, and that's what I'm doing right now with the HIV Cure Foundation. It's like, you have a concept, an idea, you know where you want to go, and yet um, there's nothing in place to do it. Now, the Kansas Cancer Research Foundation had had volunteers running um, operations for about a year. They decided if they were going to accomplish their mission, they needed to hire somebody. Um, I was fortunate in the fact that I had worked at enough organizations in the nonprofit field that I learned different aspects of both the administration and the fundraising um, operational side. Um, to do different kinds of campaigns and meet with different people and, and do the plan giving and the major gifts and all that. Um, being the one-man show, you have lots of hats. And it, you have to approach it with the right spirit because it's not a I can't, it's I can and I will. Um, you, when you have the mission as your focus, it helps you decide how and what to do all the time. And you have to prioritize. And so. Um, we took some incredible risk because we started out small and we had to build to accomplish that mission. I think one time, and if I can help anybody with a thought today, it's like, don't get overwhelmed with what the big picture is. Start small and grow it. Um, you know, a, a mother never births a college student. She births a baby. <laughs> and that baby is going to grow into a loving child and then an adult that you're proud of. But it, it's a journey along that way. And so it's baby steps, it's mistakes. You know, I look at it and say, okay, I might take a step backwards and then two steps forward. And there are times when I've taken two steps back and one step forward. Just don't repeat it. Don't trip over the same stone again. Learn so, from okay, So tell me, tell me what you did at Kansas that was so, you know, yes, we all have failures. We, take, we have to take a step back to be able to take two steps forward. Tell me specifically, what was it that you did at Kansas that um, had that kind of outsized impact? And we'll, then we'll go further down the rabbit hole sure. on, you know, the taking risks, because I'll definitely want to segue into that, that piece. Absolutely. Um, probably the thing that the biggest game changer in the organization was in 2010. We, um, I was watching the Today Show plug in there for NBC right now. Um, well, I did today's show and Demi Moore came on the show one Tuesday morning, March 1st. Of I, how do I remember these things? Because it was so monumental and in the, the journey of the Kansas Foundation, watching Demi talk about the Pepsi Refresh Project. And it was what Pepsi was doing in lieu of doing Super Bowl ads, they were gonna give 13 or $12 million in a year's time to nonprofits that were doing something refreshing. And you could apply to get a grant and you had to be a part of this voting process. So I'm watching this going, man, this is something that could really help us. There, was, there were two grants for $250,000. So I went to the office, set up the paperwork, applied that afternoon, and they said, well, you've already missed the cutoff for March, but you know what, we've got you in for April. So during that period, we didn't have a Facebook page. We didn't have an Instagram page. We didn't have a Twitter account. Um, I didn't really even have a database at that point because we are, we're so young. And yet it's like, it wasn't, I, I don't think we can do this. It's like, we're going to do this. But then I'm like, okay, I'm competing against New York City and um, Chicago and LA. I mean, how can we do something so big and we're so small? It's about gathering the volunteers. Um, the um, 
the guerrilla marketing aspect of getting people to believe in your cause and doing things on your behalf. And people got so excited about voting that we went from 287th place in the, in the, the poll that, that month to number one 10 days before the contest ended, and we were the first place um, at the end of April. Um, $250,000 was something that truly was um, you know, beyond what we really thought. My board thought I was crazy. And yet, you know, I take risk and I take calculated risk because it's important that you have to, you don't know if it's, I don't live with regret. I always try to do the unthinkable. And by doing that, you can accomplish great things. Now, we had, a, we had another thing that happened to us. Um, the next day, May 1st, I get a phone call from the uh, people that were administering the contest, um, Global Giving. And they said, oh, by the way, Mark, um, do you do animal testing? And I'm like, well, you have to do animal testing for cancer research in order for the first patients to be able to be treated in a human setting. And they said, well, Pepsi can't fund animal trials. And I'm like, whoa, you know, this was on the application. And so what we did was, she says, well, if you can just rewrite your application and use it for something other than research, we'll still fund you. So we did things like I hired my first employee who was a project manager so he could pet, manage this whole Pepsi Refresh project. And then we, we had money out, allocated for social media, for text giving, for um, Capitol Hill briefings, for conference um, attendance, and things like that so that we could get our, our name, build our audience, and um, change the world. But that still didn't fund my research, which is what we're out to do. And so what I loved about the contest was that so many people were so proud of the fact that they engaged their friends and got on the vote. And I had a gentleman call me from um, the middle part of the country, and he said, Mark, I just wanted to tell you, I'm so happy that you guys won. He goes, it was because of me. Because he goes, I told all my friends, and they told their friends, and they told their friends. He goes, he goes if, you guys probably wouldn't have won if it wasn't for me. I says, well, I have some good news, and I have some bad news. He goes, what's the good news? I said, well, we're still going to get our money. I said, the bad news is I need $250,000 for research now. And this is where um, Gerald Panis wrote the book, How to Never Get a No. And how that happens is you have to know your donor. And I had been working with this gentleman for um, almost a year. And I was working him up for a larger gift. And he had given like maybe $50,000 the, the previous year. And I just asked him, I said, well, would you? He goes, what if I, what if I would give the $250,000 for the research? Would that help you out? I'm like, how do I just raise $250,000? I hardly even, I hardly even ask him. But it's putting that person in the right place at the right time. So that's one example of how we took something out of nothing and were able to engage lots of people that then are now lifelong um, friends, lifelong um, followers of the work, and um, that's how it happened. Well, you, you, you mentioned you also gained lifelong friends and you had this incredible reach. I do know that you also had some celebrity engagement. So talk a little bit about your, your engaging celebrity. Because I want to go into, after we talk about this, we're going to talk more about the risk aspects. But I just want to make sure, I, sure the audience gets full context and the depth and breadth of the, of the impact that you had with, like you said, the limited resources. Yeah. So once we get that picture, we'll go, like I said, we'll talk more. So give, me, give us a better idea about the celebrity engagement that you had and what that looked like. Yep, yep, great. Um, so I hope my former assistant is not listening to this uh, podcast right now because um, she walked in my office one day with the mail, and she, um, she printed out a couple emails and said, these came to the general mailbox, Mark, and it, um, it's from this um, Kevin at glenbeck.com. Um, is this trash? I'm like, no. Do you know who Glenn Beck is? And she's like, not really. Well, for those of you that don't know who Glenn Beck is, he's, um, he's a good friend of mine now. Um, he's a polarizing individual in the media that um, is very opinionated. He talks about politics. He talks about religion. He talks about um, the stock market. He talks about anything that could be potentially controversial. And this, this Kevin talked to me about the fact that um, his mom had breast cancer. What can we do to help? 
And I said, wow, Kevin, I'm going to be in New York next week. Can I come see you? And he said, I'd love that. So did, you actually, meeting. did you actually have a trip to New York, or did you make that up because you, you wanted to meet with you? Well, I said goodbye to Kevin. I got off the phone, and I got on my computer and bought a fucking plane ticket to New York. <laughs> I'm going to New York. But you know what? That You've got to be ready for that moment. And at, yeah. at that from that time, Kevin and I have become friends. Actually, he has um, been a, a reference for me pr- professionally um, because of the relationship we built and the trust and just the, the camaraderie. But uh, Glenn ended up having a fundraiser for us. He did a show on his, uh, his television. You, you, came to the, you came to the fundraiser. And um, it was a great evening. We raised over $100,000 from um, affluent people in New York City and uh, got to, to meet Glenn after the show. And it was one of those things that, um, you know, Glenn, Glenn did so much good for us. At the same time we were talking with Glenn, we had um, been a part of what was called the Pinkwell Challenge. And it was a, a gentleman who owned oil wells in uh, Texas, and he painted one pink to raise money for breast cancer research. And he partnered with Ellen DeGeneres. And again, another viral contest, kind of like the Pepsi Refresh, but it was one for 25000 only 25000 So um, while we were participating in that, we had the opportunity to communicate with, with Ellen's team. And we were promoting her show, giving out the money, all this kind of stuff. And I had to laugh because, you know, there couldn't be people on two different spectrums than Ellen and Glenn. And yet their, their commonality was the fact that they both hated cancer. And they hated the fact that um, the current treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, was horrifying. And it was terrible. And the fact that we needed a better way to treat it, and we had the solution. And they wanted to be a part of that. So they had the audiences that I never could have reached and could have gone out and um, met with these people. And uh, they talked to their audiences, and it was very transformative. So um, it didn't come without, you know, and we're going to talk about risk in a minute. So I'll talk about what the risk was of doing that um, with my board as we move forward. So, sure. So, okay, so you, you segued really nicely for me there. So what I want to talk about first in the program is the idea of taking risks, uh, because when you're talking about doing more with less, you're, you're doing things that are not necessarily conventional, right? You're doing things that are, um, you know, to be unexpected. It's uncharted territory. There's no manual. It's not like, you know, from page 86 to page 105, this is how you do it. You kind of have to, like you said, you know, take risks. But I would imagine, just like I know from my own experience, I imagine I know from my experience, and from my and the and from plenty of other people that risk is not necessarily appreciated, right? You can work in an organization and playing safe or being conservative, um, you know, doing your job as, as someone might think, or what they think your job should be is the way to go. So the idea of Taking risk is something that you would need to get your leadership buy-in. That could be your board. It could be your supervisor. Um, you know, th- it's not something you can necessarily do in a vacuum. Even yourself, who came in as a one employee, so you didn't you report to any other staff person, but you have to report to a board. And I'm sure when they were drafting your job description, they had a pretty you know good idea of what they wanted you to do, what they didn't want you to do. And I don't think they imagined you getting onto the Ellen, you know, doing stuff with Ellen DeGeneres or doing stuff with Glenn Beck was, you know, built into that job description. So I'm curious to know, you know, what your thoughts are on how you uh, took on the risk and how it worked vis-a-vis the leadership and getting their buy-in um, and any techniques, any thoughts on like what you, what any of our listeners or people who are watching from home, what they can do to to take risks and apply themselves. But just as a caveat before you answer that question, um, we have a Q&A box open underneath the video screen. If you have any questions for Mark or myself during this segment about taking risks, feel free to uh, respond. But I'm going to turn it back to uh, Mark now to talk a little bit about his guidance on, on taking risks. Because as you know, um, anyone who wants to make big change has to take some risks. You can't play it safe. and and being able to do that is something that is, of course, by definition, outside of one's comfort zone. So what, what is some of your thoughts on that, Mark? Let me just tell you, it's a journey, and it is a scary journey. 
but it's rewarding. And I feel like you can't be an effective leader um, if you don't take calculated risks. You have to you have to determine that the finish line is the most important thing you can do right now. And that means that you may take a step backwards to get two steps forward. My wife and I went to um, a little town called Ocala. It's just outside of um, Orlando, about an hour. And um, we are we're on our way home after a show. And the iPhone map said that we needed to go um, this other way, which was way out of the, the, the path that we had come on. And we thought, oh, this is so stupid. Why is iPhone doing this? And so we took the chance that we knew what we were doing. And what happened was there, the road was closed in the evening for road construction. And we got detoured about 45 minutes out of the way and got home at a very insane late hour of the morning. And I had to think about, like, what would have happened if we would have just done what they told us to do? We would have been home before midnight. But because we took that risk, we learned. And for me, it was a lesson I learned. Obey iPhone map. Now, why do I say all that? Because, like I said before, it's a journey that you're on. And you have to realize that, like, I've worked in research now for quite a while in my career. And it's like, you have to understand that you're going places that's never been gone to before. And you have to be willing to take those risks. You want to mention about reporting to a board or to have a, a person that, you, that supervises you. I think the most important thing you can take away from this today is always communicate. Have an open door of communication, letting people know what's going on so that you can manage those expectations, so that there's no surprises. Because the last thing I want from a staff member is for them not to tell me something's going on, I find out in the news, or I find out through a donor. Um, the same thing is true of your board or your boss, and communicate with them what's going on. Give them an opportunity to buy into it, because um, just like with Glenn, when I presented, we had a national convention uh, before the foundation closed, and um, I invited Glenn to be the keynote speaker, because to me, I felt like he was an individual that had expressed um, both a commitment to our cause, he had an audience that he could draw from, and um, it was kind of like a reward for him for doing all the good that he had done for our foundation. He had the highest celebrity status of somebody that I had a personal relationship with, that I could like personally ask, Glenn, would you do this for us? And when I told the board, um, our local newspaper literally went crazy. Um, they, they blasted me. They um, nailed me up on the wall, said I had ruined the foundation because of the reputation that it had had versus what it reputation was after asking Glenn to come speak. And, you know, I made sure that the message I had was always consistent. This is about the cancer patients, the families that are dealing with all these treatments. We've got to have a better way. And if Glenn hates cancer and he hates current treatments and he loves us, he's qualified to speak. Yeah. Put those po political and personal opinions aside. Think of the patient. And so um, it was not a unanimous approval to have Glenn come. Several board members didn't boycott the convention, but they were not smiling during the convention. Um, and that's okay. They were there. And you know what? I mean, that was their prerogative. But it was a successful, sold-out event. And the newspaper turned around and wrote on the headlines above the fold um, the day of the convention, the Kansas Faces 20, um, 2013, I think it was, a complete success. So um, it was a risk. It was a scary moment to present this to the board, especially after um, I had to call a special meeting because of all the newspaper articles and the, the op-eds and, you know, the letters to the editors and, you know, um, my funeral announcement, you know, all these kind of things. It was like, but <laughs> you have to know and you have to believe in what you're doing and that you're moving that mission forward. Right. I, I, I think that something that you that, that is really important for our listeners to understand is that when you are looking to do something big and bold and you said that communication is key, 
What that means is if you're talking to your supervisor or whoever the power is that, you know, that be that, that have the ability to, you know, write your check, um, they have, you have to be able to communicate what the upside is and what the downside is. In other words, let them know. Put that information in front of them. Let them see this is the bold risk that we want to take. This is the risk we want to take, what we think the payoff will look like. And this is the potential downside. And sometimes the potential downside is, you know, not as scary as someone may initially think because the moment you put it to words, someone goes, oh, okay, really, that's really just the downside? Okay, we can, we can manage that kind of risk. And sometimes it's a little bit scarier, the idea of like a newspaper writing that this is the death knell of the, uh, of the cancer research organization because you've teamed up with a conservative radio disc jockey. That might be a little bit more serious. But whatever it is, you need to lay the cards on the table and say, this is the thought process, this is why you, and be passionate about it. Make your case. Say, this is why I want to do it. These are the potential risks involved. And then, yeah, you can make it a decision that's leadership-driven because ultimately the board has fiduciary responsibility. They have the, you know, the onus is on them to stand behind the organization, and they can tell you, yeah, go for it or don't go for it. That's when you're dealing with directly the board. If you're dealing with a supervisor and it's a specific program, you know, it's on whatever scale you're looking at. If you need to go to, the, to your supervisor and say, hey, I have this idea for an event or I want to do this volunteer program, whatever it is, make the case for what you want to do. And if it doesn't pan out, then they knew the, they knew the risks. And then you can send, everyone will say, look, we learn from our mistakes and we're going to move forward and we know what doesn't work and we will, you know, we'll, 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 we'll learn from the lessons, we'll get up and we'll move forward. So I, I think that what you're describing is, Incredibly valuable. The risk can be big, and the and the and the and as long as it's communicated properly, then in, you know a, a calculated decision can be made on whether or not that risk is worth it for the organization. Um, obviously, if you're a loose cannon and you're just doing things, then that's not responsible. You're not playing your role as a professional. Um, but risk is inherent for any real growth, and I, I think it, you know from the stories that you've described, that's that's clear. Absolutely, you know. Um, I think the way you enter that risk-taking, you've got to be consistent in what your character and personality is all about. For me, my board never questioned my passion for the cause, for finding a better way to treat cancer. It was, it was not like something new that, oh, Mark came up with this new idea, and look, at this, look how different he is excited about this. No, Mark is always excited about everything. That's one thing that yeah. everybody says. Settle down, Mark. You're too, you're too hyper. No, I'm excited about what I do, and I'm passionate about it. And you know what? I really, I can truly say that there are certain causes that I would die for, and the, the Kansas Foundation was, was one of those, and HMAE Cure Foundation is one of those. And I, that's what makes me excited and a strong leader, because you have to stand and believe in what you're doing. Yeah, the number one compliment a fundraiser gets is not that you can sell ice cubes to Eskimos. It's not that you can, you know, you're a slick salesman and sell me the Brooklyn Bridge. It's none of that. It's none of that. It's, nope. I see you believe in what you're doing because people will only get behind you if you are behind it yourself. If they feel like you're just a gun for hire and that you're there to just take a check, they will smell that out so fast. So the fact yep. that you are moved by it, you get choked up by it, that you are excited by it, they, people may poke fun of your energy level, but in the end of the day, I think most people are jealous that you could get such satisfaction and joy and excitement out of your, your, your day job, uh, which for anyone who's in the nonprofit space is not really just a day job. It's a, it's, a, it's a day and night and lifetime job. Like we live and breathe it because we believe in it. And that's the best compliment you get. So we have, a, we have some questions that are coming in um, uh, from Todd. Where do you draw the line with instances that are too risky? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're like, oh, I'm not even comfortable with it? Or where do you, where do you find that, that line to draw? Great question, Todd. Um, boy, you know, I do a SWOT analysis for almost everything I do. Um, I did a SWOT analysis for whether I should take on HIV Cure Foundation. Um, I did a SWOT analysis moving to Orlando and other jobs that I've interviewed for because, you know, you have to put up what are the strengths and weaknesses, the opportunities and the threats that um, a per, you have to look at on each one. And I, I put a lot of weight on all of that because I'm a risk taker. Um, you know, I might put 
a little bit more weight on the opportunities and threats because for me, um, I, I'm a very positive person. And so I'm looking at, you know, what, what those downfalls might be. But, um, you know, in most cases, I, I don't entertain much thought if it's too risky. It's, it's more of the, the ones that are on the line that, you know, that's when I start weighing out the, the things. I, I also um, rely upon advisors, people that I trust their, their insight on that maybe have gone through similar things and um, ask for their opinion because uh, it's, it's, it's important that you have the buy-in from those that you respect. Yeah, that's great. Um, I want to move into the next topic because I want to make sure we get through our, our few topics we have for today. So we're going to talk about messaging. I think that when a lot of people talk about this featured very strongly in the poll about the idea of, you know, not having to do more with less and not having the resources available. I think a lot of times people struggle with how do I get my message out? How am I able to be, you know, if I'm a one man or one woman show and I'm able to, you know, have a strong reach? I think reach, messaging and reach is a big challenge for a lot of people. So I guess my question for you is, you know, when you're creating your messaging, you know, what, what are you able to do? that will make you stand out in a bigger way? Like what, what kind of messaging is stuff to think about? Um, and then also like tools or other kind of uh, uh, tricks that you, that you employ, um, whether it's Kansas Cancer Research, whether it's going to be with the HIV Cure Foundation, just in your career so far, what is something that you found to be an effective uh, use of your time and money um, when it comes to marketing messaging, with, you know, specific tools, specific techniques, things that will help take the messaging and propel it forward. So if you can tell us a little bit about messaging, like how you make it ring through with all the clutter and standing out, and then also on some of the tools and other techniques that you think that people should employ when they, when they don't have a lot of resources available to them. I, I love to communicate. And for me, you have to know what you're going to say. Um, a mission statement is valuable. It can, be, it can be fluid. It can be something that evolves over time. But you've got to have a, a mission statement that is your talking piece. And by having a mission statement, um, you, you can rely back upon that for everything you do. If what you want to communicate doesn't enhance that mission, then you're wasting time resources. Um, it, it, it's just so important to um, know what you want to say, and you have to stick to that message. Um, when you create your message, um, one thing that, that I have used, and I, I, I've done this for about the last 15 years now, is create a message tree where um, I have the message, and it can be for your mission statement as well. It can be for a campaign that you're ready to run. But you have the message you want to portray, and then all the different platforms that you're going to um, share that message on, and then how that message is going to be displayed. So you may say something, and I, I do this for my audiences too, because I had um, a presentation that I did for five years at the Kansas Foundation. And I would tweak it a little bit each time new technology came out, new um, research was um, presented to us, but our mission was always the same. But the audience was different. And so I could go in, I never took note cards. I had a PowerPoint, but I never took notes to run it. Because you've got to know, this is, this is your, this is your talking from your heart. And it's got to be something that you, it just rolls off your tongue. And so whether it was, I was going to a kindergarten class, I was going to a nursing home, to a Kiwanis club, to the um, engineering school at Penn State, which totally freaked me out because I was in a room full of geeks that knew a lot more about science than I did. And yet, when you walk away and people go, this is like the most incredible presentation I've ever heard. And I was, I was humble because I was like, really? From me? My dad used to say when he was living, you know, you, you shocked me, Mark, because I was kind of like on the creative side, more like the artsy guy. And for me to be talking about science things was just like a joy to him because he couldn't believe that that would come out of old Marky. But it was one of those things that when you know your message, you have to evolve that message to continually be um, present. It has to be compelling. 
Um, it has to be something that just grips a person, whether whether they're the numbers cruncher or whether they're that um, philanthropist that, that wants to help the world. Everyone gets a, the same message, but just tweaked a little bit to, to be for them. So mess, message trees are invaluable. I've already started working on that for my new organization, but it's kind of hard to do it for my new organization because I don't have the message yet. We are, um, we don't even have a mission statement per se. What we're gonna do is we're gonna fund human trials for HIV studies. What we don't have is a, a full board of directors yet that can develop and write that mission statement because you know I find like as a leader, it's not my mission statements. It's our organization's mission statements and the board of directors hire me to be the operations guy to, to broadcast it. And so as I'm um, you know, working on this right now, I'm looking at who my audiences are going to be. I'm looking at what platforms can I present this message. So I've already started a Facebook page and a LinkedIn. And um, we have about five, almost 500 people following our Facebook page right now. And thank you, all my friends who have joined it, because um, they believe in the leader. And now it's my job to, to share with them what the cause is all about. So if you're interested, it's HIV Cure Foundation. Um, I think it's called the HIV Cure on, on Facebook. And I'd love for you to join for that. But most importantly, I want you to understand that you take that message that you, come, you put on your tree, and then you look at all the different platforms that you can post it on. So it might be an email. It might be a verbal um, communication on the news when you're talking to somebody. It might be um, in social media. It might be on direct mail. All these things just keep on plastering the same message and just make it so that it is familiar to everyone. Yeah, I, I think that I think what you've described is what I've done in my career as well of uh, being consistent with the message, seeking opportunities to to talk. Because even like you said, whether it's a kindergarten or a bunch of uh, you know techie nerds in your space, it, it, you are honing your message to get it fine, to get it strong, and to also get it out to a wider audience. Because I think that when you're talking about not having the resources, you're not hiring necessarily a PR firm, right? You know, some of these some of these companies and consultancies are very expensive. So your ability to say Give me a platform. Let me talk to an audience that I think it's relevant for, and I will make new friends along the way. And what happens is you start picking out um, the right key people. I think one of the things that I like to talk about is um, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point. He talks about the three types of people, or three types of you know, three types of people that can help um, cause a tip, exponential growth, whether it's a company or fashion design or whatever it is. And he says you're looking for the mavens, the connectors, and the salesmen. Right. Mm. When you're talking about growing, you usually you think, okay, who has the most money? But the reality is, if you focus on mavens who are experts in your field, and you develop an, a relationship with them, it adds credibility and gravitas, and the ability to use them as an ambassador for your cause. You have connectors. They're the people who give you the reach. Right. That we all know the connectors. They're the ones who seem to know everybody. And not only do they seem to know everybody, they know everything about them. They're like, isn't your daughter on the rowing team at this, at this you know, university? And they're like, yeah, how did you know my daughter's on the rowing team, right? Like they, they know a lot about a lot of people. And that gives you a reach that you didn't necessarily have. And then the salesmen are the people who know how to package what you've got to offer with all the credibility and the gravitas that they made and brought to the table and bring it to the networks of the connector. The connector says, oh, I know somebody in this industry. I know somebody who is part of this country club who would love to have you there, right? The idea is that you find the right people and that's, that costs you time, it doesn't cost you dollars. So the ability to say, okay, let me look for the right people, be cognizant that it's not just chasing the dollar, but rather chasing people who can help advance the mission and then the money will come. So knowing that, that you're focusing on those people will, and, and it gives you permission uh, to constantly rehearse and work on your, your script and the language that you do talk, you know, that you use to talk about your organization. If you talk to somebody after your 50th or 60th, you know, presentation, people will hear you and do like what you said to you, like, that was an amazing presentation. Well, I suspect, Mark, that your first time you ever did your presentation, it was not as impressive as your 60th time. Is that a fair estimation? Oh, boy. You, you got that one right. In fact, I, I spoke the other day 
um, to a group of Ryan White community people here in Orlando, and I could barely spit out my name. I was so nervous, let alone like what we were going to try to do. And yet, you know, you just kind of have the right spirit. Let them know that, you, you know, you love what you're doing. You love the mission that you're going to accomplish. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I had brunch yesterday with a, with a friend that um, I worked with four years ago, and he calls himself the connector because he's already connected me with a physician. Um, he's connected me with a doctor that, um, or a, a, yeah, a doctor, he's a doctor of pharmacy with Walmart specialty. And I mean, it's like all these people that are connected that it didn't cost me a penny. It didn't cost them a penny. Yep. But they all want to do exactly what we're trying to accomplish. And he said, this one guy, he is so excited about helping you. He'll do anything to help. And it's like, those are the kind of people you need. And it's all about connecting and using those resources um, of, of people and not necessarily resources of money. But I will say, we'll add uh, this, that um, one of the benefits of our um, Pepsi Refresh project, we, we purchased um, a contract with a PR firm in Boston. And I had to say, you know, I, it took a lot to bite that one because I did three um, RFPs. One was in New York, one was in Washington, and one was in Boston. And, um, you know, I made a lot of locals upset because this is a local initiative. Well, you know, we have to be global. We have to look at the big picture. You know, Erie, Pennsylvania is not going to fund all the research. Um, it's the world right. that's going to do that. And so I needed someone that had a Rolodex that could perform. And so the one thing I was, you know, I, I wanted someone that could connect me to people that um, had influence. Um, and I wanted, I wanted outcomes on a monthly basis. I wanted to see who did you present to, wh whether it was a media source, whether it was a politician, whether it was a person of influence and celebrity. And um, they set up so many Capitol Hill briefings for me. I got to meet Nancy Pelosi, um, John Boehner, um, forget who the um, secretary or the, um, it doesn't matter. And then um, all of our Congress people. And I, I'll never forget when Bernie Sanders ran for president the first time, because I'm going to the back of my head and going, I remember the day I met him. And it was because of the PR firm that they set up this briefing. And um, it's those kind of things that I also want to add that they, all the people that gave proposals, then I told them, okay, I want them all cut in half. I want the same amount of service, but I want you to cut it in half. I want, to, I want us to be your charity. I said, you had to pay your bills. You had to pay your people. But I said, I don't want you making money on us. I want you to help change the world with me. And they did. They cut it in half, and we retained them for four years. So wow. they were That's a amazing. valued you asset. Would, you wouldn't know unless you asked, right? Yeah, if right. It was like you, by you, it was like a, a solicitation to this firm, and, and it turned out the way it did. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Um, let me, let me, I have another question from, from a, a, a listener, but I'm going to save that question for the next topic because I think it's okay. best housed there. So we're going to move into the third topic, which is people, right? Being able to uh, do more with less. And one of the big challenges that we have is finding, uh, whether it's a professional staff, lay leadership, board members, volunteers, getting people to uh, be on your team. And we've talked a little bit about it today, but I want to ask you a little bit more, Mark, specifically about like how nonprofits can think more big picture on involving leadership and volunteers, um, in both in terms of fundraising and volunteerism. So like, what is your summer thoughts as far as being able to um, scale and grow as an organization? Because you, you said it well, you said before that, you know, you need, it takes a village. Um, when you wanted to do the Pepsi refresh challenge, you needed people to be voting on your behalf. You turned those people who were voting on behalf into donors, into friends who went way beyond the campaign itself. So tell us, tell us a little bit about finding the right people and engaging them. And one of the audience questions is specifically like, if you're new and you're not necessarily a sexy organization yet, right? You don't have that kind of recognition and you know household recognition. Um, how do you position yourself as something that they should get excited about when you're not there yet, right? Like you're just that small fry, like why get involved with the new guy? So speak about getting leadership involved and that also for Lisa and Boca and Boca Raton, uh, answer her question about the idea of uh, positioning yourself where it, you are attractive to somebody even though you're, you're the new kid on the block. Okay, Lisa, I'm gonna start with your answer for the question first because it really 
It's our job as the CEO, the executive director, the leader of the pack to make that organization sexy. You have, it's your job. It's your responsibility. And you know what? That is what is so much fun about what we do. We, we can use, this is where my creative side comes in. I get to like create that, that, um, that aura about us. Now, I remember when Jonah first met me, he asked a question like, how big is your staff? Because you guys are everywhere. I see you everywhere on social media. You're, you're all over the, the country speaking to people. And you're like, how many do you have? At that time, I think I had three. He's like, no way. It's hard as a leader of a small organization because you have to do it all. I mean, like, I wear every hat in our organization right now. Um, I'm trying to learn the new database that I got, which was um, Charity Engine. .net. We'll plug in for them because I love the platform right now. Um, what, but you what know what? That? What is Charity Engine? It's kind of like Blackbaud um, for pennies on the dollar. And for a starting organization, I mean, they have everything I need plus. Um, it's a robust CRM, and they um, can – they're processing everything from the, the donation side um, with low rates to um, email campaigns and the whole work. So I'm learning that, that now as we ramp up for the year-end giving and things like that. Um, they helped me immensely because of the relationship we built to, to get our ability to accept credit cards on World AIDS Day, which was um, a, a two and a half week turnaround, which normally takes six to eight weeks. So, I mean, like, it was, it was intense, but we got it done. And, um, you know, right now, I'm the creative. So we're, we're doing branding. Um, I'm the, the fundraiser. I'm going out talking to people. I'm the, the, the face of the organization. I'm trying to learn the science behind it. And I'm learning the audience because um, those living with HIV have been plagued for so many years with both a stigma in the community and the illness itself. And we're here to help heal. And that's what I'm so excited about is this opportunity. But you can never, like, do the woe is me thing. Um, it's really easy to like be exhausted because it's like, oh, man, I have this list. And I mean, I, I carry my sino pad everywhere I go. I just keep on adding the things I need to do, and I rarely scratch it off. But when I do, I am so excited to take that pen and just go right through it. That's why I don't keep my list on the computer. I want to be able to like take my pen and scratch out something I've done. And for all those people that are OCD like me, you write down things you've already done and then cross it out because you got to make sure you know that you've accomplished something. But the day comes when you understand what is most valuable for what you have to do and what you don't have time for. What can you let go of? What can you delegate to somebody else? So that transition into how do you pick the right people? Sometimes it can be a volunteer. I look at volunteers just like I do an employee. I can fire a volunteer. You have to be able to fire a volunteer. When I was working in the hospital and I had about 150 um, auxilians that were reporting to me, I had to fire the president of the auxiliary one time because she violated a HIPAA um, law. And, you know, she went through my training. She knew it well. She actually helped me with it, and she broke it. And that wasn't very much fun because, you know, it's like, do you add a zero to their pay or do you take a zero off their pay? Um, but you have, you have to treat your volunteer just like you do an employee. But the thing you have to do, and I mean, I look at this, I go, you know, you don't want a complete organization of many me's. They can't be cloned, so everybody can't be Mark Knighting. Um, you want diversity within your organization, both of sex and um, religion and lifestyle, the whole thing. You need, you need diversity, but what everyone has to be one spirit kindred on is the mission. And so when I'm looking for an employee, the first thing I look for is what is the spirit that they portray? Do they, do they love, do they live our mission? Is it something that they would, you know, put all of their heart into? The skill sets are secondary. If they're trainable, teachable, moldable, willing to take what they do have and transfer it, translate it into the needs of the organization, and that no job is beyond their, um, you know, their job description, then 
they could be a really good fit. And so I didn't make always, always the right decisions. I brought on people that didn't work out. But all in all, um, I had the best team, and I look forward to growing this organization to be able to do the same. Um, with board members, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now because I'm trying to frantically get a, a national board of directors together that, that bring a, a tremendous diversity. So what I do is I do a, a matrix of um, how I set up my board, geographics, um, sex, male or female, um, orientation, race, skill sets, and I map it all out because I want to make sure I have representation from all the country, from all kinds of people that are in that country and can bring the skill sets that can advise me as I need. I have already told each board member, I'm not planning on having you be a working board member. You all have a job and you've hired me to do my job. My job is operations. Yours is fiduciary, making sure I um, am held accountable. And so I'm creating this matrix that I have used in many organizations now, and I've used it in my, in my um, uh, consulting the same way, where it is it's helpful to understand it's not just a group of people that are your friends. That's not all bad if you have friends on your board, but you need people that can really help move your mission forward. Yeah, I think one of the one thing I have experienced when it comes to recruiting lay leadership um, volunteers is from the project management approach of uh, being able to clearly define where their job begins and ends. I think a lot of times we will say to people, I want you to get involved, right? Like that, that amorphous language of get involved doesn't do anything for anybody. No board member wants to just get involved and sit on a, on a committee. You know, you can completely waste your time on a committee if they're just sitting there and rubber stamping and like if their role is fiduciary as a board member, then that's their, what their role is and you're making that clear to them and that's what you described. But I think it's very important when you're talking about recruiting leadership that you're able to clearly define where their role begins and just as importantly, where their role ends. And that way you'll know, first of all, you'll, if you're able to, de to describe that, you'll be able to say, okay, this is, these are the positions that I need to fill and then you can find the right people based on something like the psychographics and being able to kind of profile the different people that you're engaging and say, who, who do I need at this table? Who do I need to be reflective um, for their voice, for their access, who they, who they are able to reach, uh, what they're able to do? Um, all very important. And unless you clearly define those roles, it's, it's hard to do that. Um, Mark, I'm just going to end the, we're pretty much at the top of the hour. So our, our program is pretty much coming to an end. Just going to ask you one quick question. If you give me the, uh, the two-sentence answer, um, Dalit is asking, one of our listeners is asking you, um, where do you find your greatest inspiration? Because as a creative and your energy, you know, it doesn't surprise me. People want to know, like, where do you get your inspiration? Where do you, where do you find that? So if you want to kind of end off our program with that answer, that would be great. I'm a very spiritual person. Um, I have a relationship with God, and I think that is what drives me every day. And then when I connect with people that are of like thought process, um, when, I, when I meet people, the reason I want to meet them is I want to find out what makes them tick. And I love, I love meeting new people. I go into a room of someone I don't, I don't know a single person there, and I walk out with a bunch of friends. And it happens everywhere I go because that's my purpose. And, it happened um, to us. It happened to us. It did. Happened it happened to us. To us. <laughs> So um, I, I am so thankful for the people in my life, and that's, um, I think, what drives me. Beautiful. Mark, thank you so much for joining the Pipeline Live. Um, it was fantastic to have you. Um, obviously, if people are interested in getting in touch with you and even maybe getting involved with you, how, how can they reach you? They can reach me at man, my initials, M-A-N, at HIVCureFoundation.org. And um, please, uh, I, I can't wait. Or just message me on Facebook. I'm right there, too. Perfect. Thank you very much for participating, uh, Mark. We will be in touch. I'm just going to close out the program, and we will, uh, you know, we'll catch up with each other. All right. Thank you all for participating in Pipeline Live today. Uh, make sure to visit us at www.altruicity.com forward slash pipeline live. You can register for upcoming events. As soon as we have the next guest, you will see them on the site, and we will promote it everywhere um, on social media. 
Um, you want to visit on my company page is altruicity.com and my book, which is Date Your Donors, which is right over here, Date Your Donors, dateyourdonors.com. You can see the book there and purchase your books there. Thank you very much for participating today, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Be well.